Hey listeners, Jonathan here. I'm dropping in on the back catalog of episodes to let you know about a very special workshop that I'm putting together in April for fans of Mindful Money. In this workshop, I'm going to be covering the path to financial independence, or what we used to call retirement. I want to show you how to create an income stream that rises to meet your rising cost of living and lasts the rest of your life. I want to show you how to build a simple, resilient portfolio that requires the least worry and effort. This is how I manage my own money. And I want to show you how to manage and adjust income through a life of rising costs and volatile market. And as per usual, we're going to bring uh, the focus back around to those things we know add to happiness and support well-being when you do finally reach financial independence. You can register at the link below, courses.mindful.money forward slash mindful dash retirement dash review dash workshop. Thanks. I hope to see you in class. You know, at the age of 32, and I decided to start my own work. And that's when I created my methodology. And my husband said, oh, you're doing financial therapy. He named it. So he's always been my namer. And he said, you know, you're doing financial therapy. And I was like, wow, that's a great name. And now there's a whole field, you know, that's been created. So that's a little bit how I went from that to that or that. Do you think money takes up more life space than it should? On this show, we discuss with and share stories from artists, authors, entrepreneurs, and advisors about how they mindfully minimize the time and energy spent thinking about money. Join your host, Jonathan Dio, and learn how to put money in its place and get more out of life. Welcome back. On this episode of the Mindful Money Podcast, I'm chatting with Barry Tesler, who's the author of The Art of Money and The Art of Money Workbook and the founder of The Art of Money Year-Long Money School. Barry earned a master's in somatic psychology from Naropa University and worked in the mental health field for over a decade before she found her calling merging emotional literacy and financial literacy. She's a pioneer in the world of financial therapy. Now, when I was thinking about launching podcasts a couple of years ago, I was doing some domain research and I ran across Barry's website and I just loved everything she was about. So when Carrie Sachs in my office said she could make an introduction, I was absolutely uh, overjoyed and excited to do it. So Barry, welcome to the Mindful Money Podcast. Thanks so much for having me. I'm happy to be here. Yeah. Barry, where do you call home? Where are you calling in from? Home is now Boulder, Colorado. I grew up in Chicago, came here for graduate school in my 20s, moved to California, got pregnant, and we moved back 14 years ago. So Boulder, Colorado is home base for now. Yeah. So you went to school there and then moved to California. Where in California? We were all over Northern California. So we always lived outside of San Francisco. So Santa Cruz, Sebastopol, my work started 21 years ago in Sebastopol. And, but I used to always teach in San Francisco one night, Berkeley the next night, then Oakland. I drove around that entire Bay Area for, you know, six to seven years. Yeah, that's, I live in Berkeley. I'm very familiar. (laughs) Yeah, so that's probably maybe another way, you know, that there was a connection because, that's where all my work started 21 years ago was in that all those neighborhoods with tiny little flyers that I used to hang up everywhere and anywhere. (laughs) I bet that's it. Actually. I think we might've traced it. That's interesting. So when you were a kid, what were you, what sort of lessons did you learn? And sort of, I'm just juxtaposing that with what lessons were taught and then what lessons did you learn about money as a child? So I grew up, as I mentioned, in Chicago, middle class, Jewish family. My parents were entrepreneurs, and they both 
dabbled and dabbled. So they were in real estate. They managed apartments and co-owned some. And then with my beloved uncles, who I grew up, they were in New York. They moved to Chicago and we opened up the very first gay bars on Halstead Street with them. So my uncles were gay and I wish they were still alive, but they were a huge part of my upbringing and even what I learned about money. So in general, let's say, what did I learn? You know, of course, my parents were different. My dad was more of a spender. My mom was more frugal, but very generous. And so there was a lot of generosity in my family. And at the same time, there were a lot of rules and guidelines that and conditions that were not clearly spoken until you broke the rule. And then I would learn afterwards. So, you know, I also wanted to work, but was, you know, told I had to go get a job at the age of 15, you know, which at the time was hard. I wanted to work and make my own money so that I could buy clothes basically and have extra cash. But I also was just told one weekend, just go out and, you know, apply for five jobs and report back, you know, with no training on how to do that or, hey, you know, what are your skill sets or, hey, how do you interview? So I felt like I was just thrown out to the wolves, you know, and that was kind of my father's approach was just get out there, do it, ignore your emotions, override them and come back with the job, you know, which I probably did. And I, you know, so I was working from 15 on, but there was just a lot of again, for me, really mixed messages. And I felt a lot of control from my father around money, around everything, and didn't want to be under that control. And him and I are very similar. So he passed away right when my first book was published, you know, two weeks before it was published. And then the day that he was actually cremated was the day of, you know, while I was on my book tour. And I, you know, so I write about him in the book and money legacy, but him and I were so similar. And then I had to, what I call transform or transmute a lot of the challenging things that we both carried. But so, you know, I did not like to be under his control. And so I think I made a lot of, you know, blanket statements, like I'm never going to be controlled by money or a man, I'm going to make my own money. And, you know, that led to many, many decisions, healthy and unhealthy. And just to complete this little story that, you know, they were just in college, they were, you know, he was paying for my undergrad. I paid for graduate school, but they paid for my undergrad. And he had me every Friday make photocopies of my bank register and Fed and fax them. I was going to say FedEx, but fax them to him from my university, you know, at Madison. And I would do that religiously every week, but then there was no discussion about like, you know, here's the amount of money you have or we have. Here's what you have to work with. Here's your limitations. Here's a budget. Here's a plan. So he would have me do these things, but then there was no follow through or understanding or explanation or meaning. So again, lots of generosity, middle-class family, and at the same time, a lot of rules and conditions that were not clearly communicated because they didn't know how to do that. And lastly, the entrepreneur thing. I got to watch the up and down and all around and the joys of it and the anxiety of it. 
And, you know, it took me until 32 to realize I can't work for anyone and I have to, you know, clearly be my own boss and I have to be an entrepreneur. But that's a little bit of the flavor. I'll say one last thing. So the siblings, I'm the oldest and there are three of us, right? Same family, same Chicago household. And from early on, I was known as the spender and my sister and brother were more frugal. And my brother had a little bank that I think I borrowed from you know, he, when he was five, they were both younger than me. So these were financial identities that we took on and I took on Spender, but, you know, Spender always gets such a bad rap instead of, I just enjoy a lot of things and I have a lot of desires and I want to buy my mom a ring at the school fair and I want the candy and I want, you know, but, you know, it doesn't mean we are overspenders. It just means it doesn't have to mean that. It means we enjoy yeah. a lot of things and later in life, I wrote a piece about it recently. I am a spender and a saver. And while it took me until my 30s to really learn how to save and use that muscle, I realized, oh, you know, you obviously can, it's a part of what I teach is you can start out with a financial identity that you take on, right? Or that's part of your nature and they can change and you can add in new ones, Right. As you got. So that's a little bit about my upbringing. Do you think that, I guess maybe in conversation with your siblings, have you determined whether or not your dad's controlling nature was gender or was it, you know, was it because you were a little girl at that time or was it because that's just how he parented? How did he treat your brother? I guess that's the question. Well, I mean, in general there, you know, it was gendered. And at the same time, I mean, me, it was also just how he, well, it was both. It was both. Yeah. Okay. It was how he parented. It was that I was the eldest. He had certain expectations. You know, they thought I was going to be a boy. I was going to be named Ben. You know, there's, you know, so. <laughs> you I shouldn't you know, know that. <laughs> <laughs> That's okay. I'm fine with all of that. You know, I embrace all parts of myself. And my husband had a nickname for me for a while and it was Bill. And I'm actually, he didn't know this, but I'm named after my grandfather, Bill, who was an entrepreneur. But, oh. you know, when I would be very masculine in ways or more direct or, you know, which are feminine qualities too, it doesn't have to be masculine. He would, he nicknamed, nicknamed me that years ago. But I do know that my father was talking with my brother, who was five years younger than me, almost six, about investments. And he wasn't talking to me about that. So there was a little bit about that. But, you know, once I became an entrepreneur, you know, and was following in his footsteps in that way, you know, there, again, I was like him, I wasn't like him. I wanted to prove a lot and do things differently than how he did business. And yet there was a lot of similar qualities as well. Yeah. yeah. So how did you get from there to here? And I know we kind of touched on this briefly, but for listeners who don't know, Naropa University is rooted in Mahayana Buddhism. And some of the founding teachers of Naropa before, you know, somatic psychology was introduced and that were think people like Allen Ginsberg and Ram Das and Joan Halifax. And so how do you get from somatic psychology at Naropa University to the art of money? Yeah, well, I have to back up and just say a teeny bit of how I got to even Naropa, right? Sure. And it involves my dad, of course, to some degree. And, you know, so my dad comes up so much. My And I'm so close with my mom now. And we used to have a harder relationship, but we're so close now. And we talk about everything to do with money, everything. But growing up, first, I wanted to be a solid gold dancer. And I'm a little older than you, but do you know what that is? Do you, yes, do you I do. Absolutely, I do. 
<laughs> that was my first career choice. The second one was I wrote a career report at the age of 12 was that I wanted to be a businesswoman. Again, my father was a businessman in real estate. So the report was, I want to be a businesswoman. I didn't know what kind of business, just in business. And then the third thing was that at 16, I asked my parents if I could go to therapy. So I wanted to understand myself better. So they brought me to a therapist. They brought me to a talk therapist, which didn't work, but it was a good first step. They also brought me to a male talk therapist. Both of those things did not work for a teenage girl or for me. But all of that led me to graduating from my undergrad degree in history, having no idea what I wanted to do, still where everyone around me was getting high paying marketing jobs right out of undergrad. And I was watching that and not understanding how how that was happening. And so I took a year to go to Israel and I wanted to understand more about my lineage and my roots. And while I was there, I was running, jogging on a kibbutz and it was like a lightning bolt hit me and I decided I was going to be a dance movement therapist. And I thought I made up an entire field and, you know, I didn't make up anything. I get to Jerusalem where then I was studying Jewish mysticism with a rabbi who knew a lot about Buddhism and brought a lot of Buddhist teaching to, you know, the folks that were coming to live in Israel, you know, and wanting to study Jewish mysticism. And so there's that connection And while I was in Jerusalem, I learned that I didn't make up, you know, dance movement therapy, somatic psychology. There's a whole field that's beginning and or had, you know, had been beginning before I discovered it, you know, not discovered it, but, you know, thought of it. And then that there was graduate programs. And so that was what got me back to Boulder, Colorado and to Naropa University to study somatic psychology when I was 24. And so, you know, and while... I've I've never been a Buddhist. My husband has chosen that at many different points and for years of his life. I was never a sitting meditation human. So I always needed movement meditation, which, you know, works for, you know, a somatic psychotherapist and a dance therapist. And so I did move, you know, whenever there was a sitting meditation weekend that we were required, I would figure out how to do authentic movement or some kind of movement meditation weekend. And, you know, those years were spent, you know, working in the mental health field, getting my graduate degree, working in hospice, the bereavement side of it, and also taking care of overnight or overnight taking care of folks that were getting close to passing. And, you know, my themes were intimacy and relationships and sexuality and body and food and grief and death. And that's what I thought I would be working on in my private practice. So and it's it sort of standard, more, sort of standard psychology, right? Yes. Yeah. Yes. Exactly. And what's missing, right? Our relationship with money. And it became alarmingly apparent <laughs> that it was left out of my graduate program completely when my student loan came due at the age of 28. Mm-hmm. And that was my wake-up call. That was my epiphany. That was my what am I gonna do? You know, one, what is my relationship to money? I've never explored this and I definitely have some shame. You know, I was throwing away my bank statements. They would come in the mail and I would throw them away. Like, what do you do with this? You know, and and 
definitely, you know, I just did not, I wasn't good at math growing up. And so I'd equated that with, well, I won't be good with money or I can clearly will not be able to learn a bookkeeping system. But it was the bigger thing is just this was left out of my graduate program. I'm training to become a therapist and we don't even talk about money and, you know, how we're going to, what are our own money emotions or money story, how to work with couples, right? So if on the surface, the biggest reason for divorce is money. And we know that's not really true, right? We know, and we'll, we can talk about that, but, and also just how do you start a private practice, you know, with the bookkeeping and the accounting and understanding cash flow and, and so on. And so it, you know, it was really one of those moments where I, I really thought of running away and never coming back and never paying that student loan off or, you know, facing it head on, like I did every other big, scary topic in life. And so that's what I started to do. I started to, I mean, my last year or so in the mental health field, someone, my, the man who ran the program one day asked me if I wanted to learn Quicken in the quiet back room for five hours. And I had been 40 hours a week in the milieu, you know, in the mental health field. And so when he offered me this five hours of quiet, you know, in the in the back quiet room, even though I was learning Quicken and Excel, things I never thought I could do. And I didn't know why he was asking me if I wanted to learn this. Something, you know, voice just said, say yes, just say yes. And so I did. And he was a good teacher and he taught me both of these programs. And the light bulbs just were like going off, you know, just going nuts. And it was like the both side of my brain were brain was being turned on and I realized, oh, I can learn this and I can have more clarity around numbers or my own finances and bookkeeping. And so I started doing my own bookkeeping and, you know, slowly I left the mental health field and decided to get a job in Rudy's bakery and accounting. I mean, in an organic bakery work, learning accounting, I needed a break, you know, from the work I was doing And they offered to pay me more, you know, with a master's degree, I was making $11 an hour. Right. Wow. You know, and it just was like, how am I going to, you know, do anything? I can't even get a massage. I can't even do any level of self-care. So the accounting work offered me 13 and then they offered me 15. And then a man said, a contractor that I met said, I'll teach you QuickBooks and I'll pay you 20 an hour and then I'll bump you up to 25. So I wound up taking a detour and learning bookkeeping and then running a bookkeeping business for other therapists and coaches and artists for a few years as a transition before one day at the age of 32, it all came together. I realized it was time to integrate my past training as a psychotherapist and all of those tools and practices with these money systems that I was surprisingly falling in love with and fascinated with and reading accounting books before bed. You know, my husband would look over and be like, who are you? Where did my wife go? And reading QuickBooks and it all converged, you know, at the age of 32. And I decided to start my own work. And that's when I created my methodology. And my husband said, oh, you're doing financial therapy. He named it. So he's always been my namer. And he said, you know, you're doing financial therapy. And I was like, wow, that's a great name. And now there's a whole field, you know, that's been created. So that's a little bit how I went from that to that or that, yeah, that to that. So were your first clients or your first, I don't know if you call them clients or customers when you did merge the two, were they other therapists that sort of faced the same, oh my God, what is this all about kind of moment? You know, I got everyone. There was always some therapists in my groups, always, always coaches. There was couples, but there were folks who worked in the corporate world, 
there were stay-at-home moms who were trying to figure out family finances. It was just anyone who wanted a more creative approach and a more mindful approach, you know, to the relationship to money. Because 21 years ago, you know, all the books that were out were by older guys, white guys, you know, and they, you know, a lot of them had a pretty tough love approach. Not everyone. There was beautiful books out there, but, you know, Jacob Needleman, you know, there's some beautiful books, right? But a lot of them were way more tough love. This is how you do it. There's one right way. A lot of shame and blame, you know, which so didn't, you know, I I got enough of that growing up that I just, I did not need that. And so it was just really anyone who wanted a more creative, meaningful, playful, values-based approach. And that's an enormous community. You know, back then it seemed more out there, but it's clearly, it's not. And yeah, yeah. yeah. I think that's a perfect sort of segue into, can you tell us, because I think the whole first, I guess, pillar or the first section of the book, the art of money or the process has to do with, you know, self-compassion, less about, you know, powering through and grind and all that kind of stuff that I think your dad taught you and my dad taught me. So could you tell us about the art of money? You know, how does it work? What are the steps, et cetera? Yeah. So the art of money, there are three phases money healing, money practices, and money maps. They all need to be talking to each other. And I'm teaching you a whole framework that you learn the tools and practices of, and then you practice it for the rest of your life, you know, day in and day out. And, you know, it's money healing is more about what are the money emotions that come up, the same set of emotions that come up in every other area of our life. But we don't think, oh, the, you know, they come up around money as well. Shame, anxiety, sadness, anger, you know, guilt, and so on, right? And joy and excitement, right? And hope. And what is your money story? So I'm just going to lightly touch on all of this and for now. And then, you know, and understanding what your money story is, healthy parts of it, unhealthy, what you want to keep, what you want to change, What financial identities you took on, you know, how do you shift them? What needs forgiveness? What needs letting go? Where do you need to honor who you were at the time that you made those so-called money mistakes or made those decisions that you're not happy with anymore? Or, you know, do you need to forgive yourself? Do you need to forgive your parents? They did the best they could, right? They didn't, you know, they did not learn a full financial education, right, growing up. They did not learn financial literacy. They'd learned parts of it. And they also did not learn, you know, emotional literacy, how to work with the emotions around all of this. So that's that whole first part, the, what I call money healing. But it's really just, you know, what is your money story? And how do you learn how to sit with all the emotions that come up in the moment? You know, when you're going to have a money conversation, when you're going online, to look at your balances, you know, your numbers and on and on. Yes. What do you want to say? Yeah. Do you think that we're aware? I mean, do you think the, I mean, the first step and the importance of that first, that first phase is just becoming aware of the story. Cause I don't think most people have any idea that they have a money story or have emotions around money. Yes. Or, you know, some people come to me and they say, I already know what the emotions are and they're big and they're overwhelming. And that I just, I don't want to deal with them or I don't want to face them or I want to run away or get them away from me. Or I know my childhood stuff, it's hard and painful and there's trauma and I don't want to look at it. So I think, I think there's some people are that for others of us, there is just a lack of awareness, certainly just a 
unconsciousness, you know, that we all have of, I didn't know I could have a money story, just like I have an intimacy story or a food story or, right, um, a story about all these other important relationships that we have. And so, yes, step one, but that's in any therapy is awareness leads to understanding, leads to change, right? Mm -hmm. So mindfulness or awareness is step one. And so the very first tool that I give people is from my somatic training. It's called the body check-in. And when people say, what's one thing I can do before I even say, learn a bookkeeping system, I say, start practicing a body check-in. And a body check-in for me is where the awareness begins. Mm -hmm. It's not where it ends, right? It's a practice. It's not, you do a body check-in in the middle of the car dealership and you're done. You know, you can calm yourself down. It's an ongoing practice. You check in on a physical level, sensation level, emotional level, breathing level. You see... It's a meditation practice, right? It's, yep, it's absolutely it's right. <laughs> and, you know, at the end of a body check in, you might want to ask yourself what's one little adjustment that can be made? Do I need to lower my shoulders, do a little shoulder shimmy, loosen my jaw, see if I can deepen my breath down, you know, more into my solar plexus or my belly? But that it's just a curiosity practice. It's, What's going on? Just let your, it's a noticing practice. That's what I want to say. It's just allowing yourself to notice in these moments. But here's the thing. I invite people to do a body check-in before the money conversations as prep. During it, if you can remember, like in the heat of the moment, you might catch yourself, what's going on? Oh, okay. My breathing is going up, right? And you might be able to name the emotion. You may not. You may just notice sensations in your body, right? So there's more moments for noticing and awareness in the moment. You might say, am I hungry? Am I thirsty? Do I? Would it be good to go take a walk around the block and then come back? And then also after the money conversation has happened or after the money purchase or after, so as a debriefing after. So there's all these moments to start to invite more awareness and more noticing. And so, you know, a lot of people are like, I'm not aware. I just do these things. And so if I can say insert, invite, body check-in and see how often you can do it. Maybe you can remember to do it before. Maybe you remember it in the heat of the moment. Maybe you can remember after. They're all wonderful and they all help to bring more mm -hmm. mindfulness, awareness to what's happening in your body, to giving you some glimpse, images, memories of your money stories. What are your strengths? What are your challenges? What did your mom do? What did your dad do? What did your grandparents do? So it's all leading to just more awareness with all of it. Again, that leads to understanding and then change. So awareness is something that, yeah, many of us don't have, or we feel we have too much of, we have a hypervigilance of. And so how can we start welcoming in a practice like the body check-in or whatever version you do before, during, and after. So tell us about phase two. Okay. So phase two is money practices. And, you know, this is where we financial therapy, we all kind of do it a little different. You know, I started in 2001. Now there's a financial therapy association that was created about six years after that. Most of them come from more of a financial planner background, right? Like you, and then they're learning emotional literacy, right? And learning psychology tools and psychotherapy tools, right? And I come from such a strong psychotherapy background, and I'm adding in all of these practical tools. And I'm adding them in because 
I think you need all of it, right? It's not just change your beliefs or know your money story or do some mantras. It's okay. Sometimes the nitty gritty or learning what your numbers are or learning how to navigate a bookkeeping system can be equally as important in making shifts. But we need to do money healing work first because then we then bring those tools and practices to when we go sit down and learn a bookkeeping system, right? So, you know, we may need the box of tissue, the dark chocolate, you know. I like to add in fun things when I'm sitting down to do a money date. So there are many parts of money practices. One of them is I like to liken it to a garden. So if your relationship to money is like a garden. You need to give it care, attention, watering, but not too much, not too little, right? And so why don't we approach this like a self-care practice and let's add in self-care practices. And so one of them is a money date and a money date just simply means sitting down and saying hello to money, you know, and what needs my attention right now. And the way that I like to do money dates is I light my candles I get out my essential oils. I do all that stuff. You don't have to do that. My husband doesn't do that. He likens bookkeeping. He had to, he used to hate it. And then one day he said, okay, I need to equate this to a meditation practice. Mm. And so when I sit down to do my bookkeeping, I'm going to, you know, sit on my cushion or set up my little desk, maybe with a candle or something, take some deep breaths, check in you know, do a little meditation and then go into the bookkeeping and approach it as that. Yeah. So, so the, it sounds like the money date is me and money, right? Is there, it, do you, is there something similar for my wife and I and money or a couple and money? Definitely. So money dates can be with yourself. They can be with your, you know, spouse, your partner, they can be with your family and, you know, money dates can be five minutes a day at the beginning. It may just be going online and checking your balances or going online and checking your balances, but going to see the transactions to see if there's anything funny. You know, sometimes I'll see fraud. It happens every few years. Or I'll see a money leak, meaning there's a payment, a recurring charge that I didn't know is still happening, right? And you're not going to catch them until you look. And so money dates can be, what is your next step? It could be reaching out to a new bookkeeper so that they can teach you QuickBooks so that you can learn how to do your bookkeeping on your own. Or you've decided, I don't want to do my bookkeeping on my own. I really want to pass it on to a bookkeeper and have them do it, but I will still have a monthly money date with my bookkeeper so we can sit down and learn how to read the reports and the numbers and learn about cash flow and learn more about where I'm spending, you know, and what and where I want to continue spending because it's in alignment with my values and where it's not. So there are many parts of a money date. Simple version, it's you and money, right? Or you and your spouse and money. And it's what are your next steps? What do you have to talk about? What next steps you have to take? So it could be five minutes a day at the beginning, but I, you know, it could be 15 minutes every few days or 30 minutes twice a week, you know, and then your monthly dates to review your numbers and all of that. So yes. In in the practices, it's not, I mean, so I love the idea of the money date and and we'll get to, we'll get to phase three in a second. Another question about the money date. How do people who don't really know, I mean, there's an enormous list of financial nitty gritty that we need to deal with. You got to look at the accounts, you got to the bookkeeping and all that, but there's also insurance and there's your 401k and there's investments. And then there's the spending and the budget and the, you know, you get a refinance. There's just so many little things, right? So yes. how, is there like, do you work with people to create a list of things that they need to, these are the things you should consider, or are you saying, you know, read this book, this has a good list or because I'm imagining people on their own have no clue. Great question. So, you know, I send out a weekly blog article, 
right, on on everything that we're talking about. So there's articles on what is a money date and how do you have one and how do you have one with yourself and how do you have one with your spouse and how do you have one with your kids? And then there's 50, I mean, I have one, I think it's like 57 possible things you can do on a money date. Okay, so, okay, 57 ideas of what to do. So there's that. But here's the other thing is that I feel a lot of what I'm teaching in the year-long program, right? So we teach the three phases, money healing, money practices, money maps over a year. Each phase is broken down into four months, right? In my book, there's also like, here are the things that you can do. Here are the practical things you can do on a money date. Here are the emotional things you can do on a money date. So that's all in the book too. And additionally though, in the money practices, I talk about who are the players on your financial support team? Mm. And, you know, what are the differences? You know, I, I had no idea years ago, what's a bookkeeper? What's an accountant? What's a financial coach? What's a financial planner? What's an estate planner? What's a financial therapist? So in the book, there's a whole chapter too of what are the different roles? What are the different players? Of course, it, it all depends on our background, our experience, our approach, and then questions to ask each of these different players when you're going to hire them. And so also on a money date, I would say, bring in a new player or for the year, assess what phase of life are you in, which is more of the money maps, right? You know, what phase of life are you in? What are your goals? What are the numbers? You know, what are your, where are your values and priorities? But who are the players that need to be in your team? Would it be helpful to add a bookkeeper this year? Mm. Would it be helpful to add a financial coach? Because a financial coach, you know, is kind of the intermediary between my work and a financial planner. And they are the handholders that sit down with you and say, what are your numbers? And they help you create budgets, but they help you create a money map or a plan over a five-year period, right? Or even for a year uh, or five years where a financial planner is more the long-term. It's more, where do you want to be investing? What do you want to do in later life? What do you, if you call it retirement, you know, we need new words for that, but what do you want to do? And then there are all these steps. So when people come to me and do my work and then they go to a financial advisor or planner, you know, and you give them a bigger plan, they have the skill sets now, you know, and they have the emotional tools as well to be able to choose a plan and stick to it rather than just getting a plan and going, how the hell am I going to, how the hell do I do this? So, you know, there's a lot, you know, those are, there's some next steps for money dates. Yeah. So talk about phase three. Yeah. So phase three is, you know, I like to, I don't even like the word budget. And that's something that we didn't talk about, you know, in phase two, I like to rename everything, rename everything. So if it's, you know, instead of budget, people call it a money map or a map of intention, they rename rent or mortgage to home or sanctuary. And that may be very silly for some just to rename things, but for other people, naming Mm -hmm. things, renaming things really makes it more meaningful or creative or fun for them and they need to have, you know, so it takes it out of that boring, dry, you know, bookkeeping or money thing. So, but phase three is where I'm really having folks assess what phase of life are they in, age, health, family, you know, what's going on and then evaluating, you know, oh, excuse me, and then creating a money map. And the way we do money maps is in three tiers. So instead of just like one tier, one set of numbers that you're going for, it's 
The first tier is basic needs. And we all define that differently based on what phase of life we're in. So you ask yourself, what are basic needs at this phase? Not five years ago, not five years from now. And what are the numbers and expenses that go with that? And then you get it and then add it up and get a total. And then you move on to the second tier, which I call comfortable lifestyle. And what do you add in then? You know, are you paid off on your debt? Are you traveling more? Are you donating more? You know, what do you do? What does comfortable lifestyle look like, feel like? And what are the numbers and expenses or savings or future that goes with that? And what's the total? And then the third tier is ultimate. And what do you get? You know, what do you add in there? And everyone's numbers are so different. You know, what someone's ultimate might be my comfortable. What, what's my comfortable, maybe someone else's ultimate. It, they're also different where we live in the world, right? What our work is in the world and on and on and on. So it's more of just an exercise. And it really helps people just do some visioning, you know, and goal setting. And then you bring that back to the bookkeeping. You usually pick one tier that you're going for that year and you sit down monthly with a bookkeeper or yourself or your partner, your family, and you check in. How are you doing with your set of projections or your set of intentions? What's working? What's not? And, you know, not everyone does it monthly. It could be quarterly. It could be every six months. And so that's a bit about what's happening in Money Maps. But here's a few more things that have gotten really big in that phase for me, and it's how to make a good money decision. And it's why some people come to me. They say to me, I don't know if I can sign up for your private session, or it's more by program. I don't even know if I can afford your program because I don't know how to make a good money decision. I don't know if I can afford this. And so while this is part of phase three, and it's part of phase three is because you have to do the money healing work right? You have to do the money practice work. You have to know what your numbers are, learning bookkeeping system. I don't know if I clarified that. You have to learn a bookkeeping system or someone needs to be doing your numbers so that you're reviewing them. We, we left that out. That's a huge part of money practices. You have to know what your numbers are. You know, yeah. you have to some degree, and this all leads to being able to make good money decisions. And so I have all these tools and practices on questions you can ask in the moment, knowing your numbers, you know, really coming up with different equations so you can make good money decisions. And for me, most of my money decisions are based on time, money, energy, family, and health. Yeah. And there's no like exact 20% here, 30% here, right? And I have lots of blog articles on this. It's in the program, it's in the book, but it's become a much more robust thing, robust part of my work, because people want to be making solid money decisions, good money decisions, whether that's buying clothes, you know, mm. figuring out if they can travel, buying a car, buying a home, you know, from small to large. It's a huge piece that I love teaching on as well. So that's a little bit, of, and, it, and it moves into money legacy and all these other parts. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I think there's a, that's a great overview and I'd highly recommend people like, I'm imagining you can subscribe to that, your email, your weekly, uh, you know, email, it's definitely subscribe there. Question. So you've worked with lots and lots of people individually, class settings, you know, in all of your experience, where do we fall down when it comes to money? Are there challenges that are like more or less universally overwhelming? Are there things that we just hit us and we don't, none of us really know what to do with? Even people that are probably planners and engage in money all the time. Are there things that really are just universally overwhelming? Well, I'd say, again, because most of us did not receive a complete financial education growing up. So we did not learn financial literacy. 
literacy and emotional literacy. So we all have our blind spots. We all have things to learn. You know, financial planners are a group that are incredible planners. You guys think about the future. It's like, it's second nature to you, right? It's just what you do. And for someone like me, that was a learned skill set. I had to use that muscle over and over and over. I did not want to think about the future, did not want to, you know, plan for the future. And so uh, things I had to learn. So there's all, everyone has their Achilles heel. Everyone has things they can learn. You know, I have, you know, a couple came into me years ago. He came from a traditional financial background. She was more of a creative person. He felt, well, this is my, you know, field. This is my, you know, this is what I've studied. I know everything. I'm a great teacher for my wife. I'm, you know, he kept sitting down and pulling out the spreadsheets and she kept being like, put those away, you know, and he could not, they were not getting anywhere. And it turned into fighting, screaming, crying, you know, and they took my program and he was very skeptical and she found it. You know, I think sometimes the guys are more into Dave Ramsey and this is not the case across the board, but you know, they're into more Dave Ramsey and the woman come and finds me for more of the compassionate, gentle, loving approach. But he really turned around because he learned one, the emotional side of money was completely left out of his training. He mm-hmm. did not know how to communicate calmly or lovingly or compassionately to his wife. His way was not the highway. His not way was not the only way. He learned he was not the best teacher for her. She wanted to learn her own bookkeeping system. I think she learned Quicken. You know, they learned how to have money conversations and a new kind of money dates Couples money dates. I teach that, you know, we didn't in a different way. Like you don't go to the numbers first. You tell stories about your childhood first, right? And then you get to the numbers later. So he had things to learn, but she had things to learn too. So as far as are there universally, there's universal things where I can have people from totally different lineage backgrounds and even economic class backgrounds and their relationship to money can be similar, right? They can have similar patterns that they're playing out or have shame or have, you know, so there are universal feelings around money, certainly. Again, no matter what lineage you come from. So there's that, which always, and then no two people come together and do money in the same way. Like you're not going to get two people who earn and spend and save and give and invest in the same way even if they came from similar economic class or lineage, right? They're going to have their different patterns and habits. I mean, this is something that's changing is, you know, we're a part of it is we're, we're learning financial literacy and we're learning emotional literacy now. And we want to be, and it's different than even 21 years ago where this was weirder. People still don't talk about money though, is there it's changing, but people for me, you know, they still don't want to publicly say I'm working on my relationship to money. And, you know, that's still, I, or I'm working with, we get so, I get so much word of mouth and have for years, but it's, people are still shyer about saying like, Oh, Hey, you know, let me let everyone know, even though we all have money stuff. And that's why I wanted to teach in groups from day one, mm. where I only do private financial therapy every few years or, you know, I'll open up 10 sessions or is because in groups, we get to see right away. We're not alone. Right. You know, we share so much. We we all need more Brene Brown to to give us permission to be vulnerable. I mean, we're all just protecting ourselves. We don't want anyone to know that we're vulnerable, that we don't know everything. And so I I think 
it just makes perfect sense to me that the group work is, you know, makes tons of sense. Say the purpose of this podcast is to help people who really don't have access to as much professional advice, make better decisions for themselves. So two questions I want to get to before things get, you know, time gets away from us. Can you tell our listeners in the simplest way possible, one or two things they can do that will improve their own financial well-being? Like they're going to get off this and then next week they can do this or this. Yeah. Okay. So step one is is start doing a body check-in, right? And start bringing that mindfulness practice, that awareness practice, that meditation practice to all these different moments. And just please be gentle with yourself and be open and let yourself notice and be curious before as prep or during these moments and after. So, you know, when you're going to make a money decision, go on blind check your balances, have a new money conversation with your mom, right? Or your children for the first time. So step one, that's, and practice that every day and learn something new every day, right? Number two is learn a bookkeeping system, you know, and, you know, whether you're like my husband who one evening could just teach himself mint, you know, in one evening, because he's tech savvy. Or if you're like me who needed to get a local bookkeeper, you know, and bookkeepers can charge anything from 20 to 100 an hour, but 20 to 50 an hour, right? You can get someone who's a good bookkeeper and who's also a good teacher who could just sit down with you and metaphorically hold your hand and show you how to navigate Quicken or QuickBooks. So you can go online and go to YNAB, Y-N-A-B, you need a budget. And they have an incredible community of free video tutorials and a forum and right. So you can either learn on your own or you can get someone to hold your hand, or you can go, you know, enjoy all those videos that YNAB has. But learning what your numbers are is really such an important step. And also give yourself three to six months to even begin to learn how to navigate something. And then it's going to take a year before you're like, I got this and I feel confident and feel comfortable. And anyone can learn a bookkeeping system, no matter if you're totally a creative person and don't think you can, you can't. You know, because I did. <laughs> just for clarity, you're actually speaking about a bookkeeping system for your personal finances, not necessarily yes. for business, but personal finances. Yes, I want. Okay. Yes, so you need to have a bookkeeping system. I want you to know your numbers for your personal finances and a separate one for your business. Now, sometimes they can be under the same bookkeeping system. Back in the day, I just learned and love QuickBooks, so I would have one file for my personal our personal family finances and one for the business. Or you have a bookkeeper do your business finances, but I want you to be doing this for your personal finances because there's so much to learn. This is where you become, this is another big place to bring awareness and mindfulness. It's not just to your money emotions and what's going on and learning how to calm yourself down or name or be with whatever emotions. It's so important to also learn your spending patterns, what are your habits, you know, and what are your top values and priorities? Like, do you love dining out so much? Like that was a non-negotiable until COVID hit, you know, was I'm dining out. It's with friends. It's with my husband. It's with my family. It's with my mom. Like that's my favorite thing to do. And that was going to be, I was going to, you know, I was going to reduce spending in other areas so that I could keep that, you know? And so, but it's getting in there and really seeing, Are you in alignment with your values and your spending and your earning and saving? Are you not? Where can you work more towards that? There's so much to be learned about cash flow patterns. And this is the piece that financial planners don't teach, right? 
so much, or they have someone on their, they might have a bookkeeper who can help with that. But this is where private financial coaching can really help. But you can also learn a lot about how to do this on your own, right? With all the video tutorials online. But yes, please learn a bookkeeping system, which is just a tracking system, a tracking tool to learn what's coming in, what's going out. And then it's going to take a few months and there may be some critique or judgment coming in. Keep putting it to the side, keep serving it tea. You keep coming back. I'm learning. I'm just learning what I do, what I don't do. Then down the road, I can make some shifts and changes in where I'm spending or how I'm spending at first. It's learning the tracking bookkeeping system and you know learning your patterns. So those are two huge things along with the third one is go subscribe to my blog so you can get all that free content from blog Absolutely. and podcast and learn from there too. Yeah. So the follow-up to that is there's a ton and you, and you know this, right? There's a ton of financial noise out there. What are a couple yeah. things people can just ignore? They don't have to worry about this and that. Wait, say that the question again. Yeah. Ask me that question again. Yeah. So there's a lot of like really popular topics out there. Maybe they're big in financial press or social media, but yeah, they don't really move the needle to providing more well-being. They're just things we get worried about and things that cause you know conversations, right. and but they're valueless in terms of our actual well-being and financial outcomes. You want to know what those are? Yeah. What can people ignore? Well, I mean, I would say, you know, I mean, they're all related, but I would say to move them to the side so that you're not perseverating on them. You know, it could be if you invest and don't be looking at your financial statements or the stock market going up and down or talk about inflation or talk about, you know, there's all these flashy things, you know, cryptocurrency that's kind of changing. And my husband took a deep dive and I was like, you go, honey, you take a deep dive and you report back, you know, and he did a little investment and then he came back and he's like, okay, I'm not going to do that for now. But some people are really into that. I would, you know, there's lots of things like that going on. And, but I would say, come back to where you're at right now, come back to, you know, two things. One, making a list of all the things or making a list of five to 10 things that you do well around money. And then your second list of what are five to 10, or even how about one to two next steps that you are ready to take, that you need to take, that you need some handholding. Do you need help filing some tax return? from a few years, right? Do you need to find a colleague who has a good accountant referral for you to help with that? So I would say first, you know, make your list of what you do well around money because people usually go, I suck, I suck, you know, or they name everything so they didn't learn. So make your list and then start making your list of your next steps that you're ready to take that you can do on your own and that you may need a little extra handholding or a new person in your financial support team. And we're going to start there, you know, and also really settling into now, like, what can I do to enjoy and be present and be grateful for now? There's always changes. There's always things to fine tune. I'll be doing that forever. So part of it is for some of us not getting too caught up in the future, even though Mm -hmm. for some of us, we need to think about that a little bit more. But also, you know, making some future plans and then coming back to what am I grateful for now and what is one or two next steps that I can take over the next week or few next and weeks and take them and then take two. It sounds like those lists, we use those lists to create a focus so that we can ignore the noise. 
is that I'm trying to figure out what are the things that we can just not pay attention to. And you mentioned a couple of those little things, and then you went straight to those lists. So those lists are actually the tool we use to say, that's what we're focusing on, the next two steps, not this other world of stuff. Yeah. I mean, you also might need to take a walk. You may need to do some sitting meditation. You may to, you know, for those of us that keep falling into the trap of the noise of the future or the shiny thing, then go to your practices, go sit, go for your walks in the mountains, go to the lake, go to, you know, go out, walk your dog, right? Go to your practices to reduce the noise and then come back to your money dates as a practice and light your candles and go to your list and, you know, what's one next step that I can take right now Got and it. take that step. And then we okay. begin again. Yeah. Yep. So, so yep. this is big and I'm sorry. I'm kind of sorry I'm leaving this to the end, but you've got a, a teenage son. I have a teenage son and a teenage daughter knowing how incredibly important the psychology of money is. How are you raising Noah to think about money? What's that process? Ongoing. And, you know, I'm not going to get it perfect. And I've been trying to do age appropriate money lessons since he was two and three, you know? So at two and three, we were in Target aisles making wish lists. Like he would add everything to the wish list because he wanted everything. So we did that <laughs> up and down, you know? And then it moved on to wants and needs. And out of these three shoes, which ones will you enjoy the most, you know? I mean, at age four, I was trying to teach him that. And so that, you know, and then we moved on to, you know, asking the grandparents to match, you know, when he wanted to save money, we were starting to allowance a bit and he wanted to save money to buy a big Lego set. And he asked the grandparents if they would match, which he now looks back and go, that was a very silly money decision. But at that time, he really wanted those Lego sets, you know, where for, his birthday this year, we're finally looking at, I shouldn't say finally, you know, this is, we're all different, you know, of when we get to it, but we're finally, he's going to go to grandparents and ask, he's been saving money from allowance or other things. And he wants to finally do his first investment. And we, we want him to be able to do his very first investment. So my God, it, you know, I've been writing about this. He doesn't like me writing about him or even sharing photos at this point. Unfortunately, we've moved into that phase. <laughs> but 13, there are what do you expect? <laughs> exactly articles on what I've been teaching him and how he's been responding to that and lots of money lessons and life lessons. But he's excited to get a job in a few years. He's brought that up. So that's a teeny bit. That's a teeny bit. It's, you know, we've brought him into giving and donation conversations. We've yep. brought him in to, you know, he was going to a private Montessori school. We finally got to the point where he wanted to go to public school, but we also didn't want to pay for school anymore. We're like, you know, we're done. We could be traveling, you know, this month. We can go to these places. We can go to Barcelona. And so we brought him into a lot of those bigger money decisions. So he had a big say as well. And really open. But I'll say one last thing. You know, there is a we're very open, but we don't share everything. You know, that's the age appropriate thing. And years ago, he said, well, how much money do you make? And at the time, if I had just given him a number, there would have been no context. And it's not that I didn't want to reveal that to him. But I had to say, well, I will tell you, but we need to sit down. I need to also explain like how much our mortgage is, how much soccer is, how much food is, you know, all these things. So there's more of a context than just like yep. giving him this number. 
of the gross income. So that's kind of how I did it. You know, he just wanted the number, you know, and so we were doing our best to teach him things that we did not learn when we were growing up to have open conversations. And, you know, even one time he thought he made a big money mistake. He felt he did. And we sat in bed late at night and he definitely was having shame and regret coming up. And, you know, at one point he said, because you guys have never made money mistakes like this. And we were like, of course we have. And then we, you know, we each shared one. And so, you know, that's a teeny, teeny bit of how we're doing. I think that's great. I mean, it's an ongoing process. It's age appropriate. It's, you know, we we try things and we fail sometimes and we admit those failures. I mean, I think that's beautiful. That's all you can really do. Yeah. And there's two great uh, books. I'll share two great books that I've gone to. Something about how not to raise spoiled kids, Ron, yep. Ron Lieber, right? New York yep. Times columnist. And then, oh, I'm forgetting the other. It's a woman. I'm going to have to get it. But she also writes really good books of what to teach age appropriateness. And I'm forgetting her name. But I shared those two books on a blog a few years back. So yeah, give me the list or I'll look for I the will. blog. Yeah. So what's the last thing that you changed your mind about? The last thing I changed my about anything is yeah, anything. about getting a puppy and we got the puppy and now I'm, you know, I love him. Look, I'm like, so, you know, ever since my son could talk, he was asking for a dog. And every time we would go to get a dog, we would go bring home another cat. So we've had up to five cats. Now wow. we have three. And, you know, I think it was just, it all finally converged. And I kept thinking, I don't want to, I love animals, but I don't want a puppy because we live in a town home and, you know, and it's just going to, you know, change everything. And I like my sleep and, but I changed my mind a month ago and it kind of all converged where my husband really, he loves animals too, but he also liked to sleep. And, but then we just, we didn't want our son's an only child. We did not want him to not have this experience yeah, and to not have an animal and to not have a dog. Well, not to have a dog. You know, and so it was one week we all converged. I went online and I typed in medium sized dog at the local rescue. Our puppy's face popped up. I knew it was him right away. It turns out he's going to be either a large or an extra large dog. He is not a medium sized dog. His name is Blue. We went to look at him, you know, and of course we brought him home that night. And, you know, it, we were, de- I was definitely like in a very calm, sleep, you know, great sleeping with my cats, equilibrium kind of place. And it's definitely added in a big dollop of chaos. Yeah. Um, But that's a great thing to change your mind about. I love it. I love dogs. Uh, It's been a while since I had a dog, but I love it. So what's the, what are you working on now? What's the next big thing for you? And then tell us how people can connect with you. Yeah. So a few big things are literally weeks away. So I don't know when this is going to go live, but two things. So one, my second book is being published, which is the workbook you mentioned. So it's a 200 page of journaling exercises that are a great companion to the first book where the first, first book is more the methodology and stories, you know, of mine and the community. So this workbook is coming out May 31st from Shambhala. And I'm so excited to have a second book. So that's big. The second big thing is that I'm opening up my very first mentorship program for therapists and coaches and financial professionals. 
And it's going to be a four-month mentorship program where I've been asked to do something like this for well over a decade. And I just wasn't ready and didn't want to do a certification, which I kept being asked about. So this is not a certification. It's more of a mentorship for, you know, all of these professionals, one, so that they have a safe place to be doing their own personal money work, two, so they can go deeper in all the tools and practices they teach in the year-long program because they need to be bringing those to their clients and their businesses. And three, I want a community where they're all cross-pollinating and, you know, the financial planners have things to learn from the therapists and the therapists have things to learn from, you know, the financial coaches and planners and so on. So that is where I'm weeks away from, I'm opening that up on May 15th and it will be June through September. And so so that's my new big thing. That's awesome. Uh, Definitely send me the links to uh, both of those things and I will include those in the show notes and I'll share the, with my small advisor community, the cohort that's going to begin, I guess, here very soon. And maybe there'll be some interest there. I'm happy to do that just personally. And then how do people connect with you? Yeah, please come to my website, barrytesler.com, B-A-R-I-T-E-S-S-L-E-R. You can join my weekly newsletter. You can find my podcast. I'm So there's a lot going on through my website. And then I'm on for social media, Instagram and Facebook. You can find me in both of those places. I'm a little more quiet these days, but I'm there weekly. So you can find me in all of those places. Yeah. Great. Barry, thank you for coming on the Mindful Money Podcast. Thank you for a lovely interview. You were very present and calm. Thank you. Thank you. (laughs) Thanks for listening. Full show notes for each episode, which includes a summary, key takeaways, quotes, and any resources mentioned, are available at mindful.money. Be sure to follow and subscribe wherever you listen to your favorite podcasts. And if you're enjoying the content and getting value from these episodes, please leave us a rating and review at ratethispodcast.com forward slash mindful money. We'll be sure to read those out on future episodes.